I think we have yet a couple minutes before we start, but uh, we welcome each of you here. And I told a group that came a little earlier, if you have a Bible and a pen and a paper and notebook, you will get the most out of this class. If you haven't brought your Bible this time, be sure to bring it next time because we are going to spend a lot of time studying God's Word. Somebody asked if I had a PowerPoint presentation, and my comment was, in my evangelism and much of my teaching, I use PowerPoint. But I think PowerPoint should never be a substitute for the Bible. And uh, this is a time that I'm not going to use PowerPoint. We're going to come and open the Word of God. I think there is something about seeing the text in the Scripture yourself. You You can see it on the screen, and that's wonderful. I use PowerPoint in my evangelism largely because people that are coming through the doors don't know the, Ezekiel, the difference between the book of Ezekiel and the book of Hezekiah. Uh, when I tell them to turn to Hezekiah, they're all flipping and looking in the Old Testament. They have no clue that Hezekiah is not a book in the Bible, and they think Sodom and Gomorrah were two twin sisters. So as the result of that, I need to start them with uh, the PowerPoint presentations. But I like to wean people away from that as much as we can, because I still believe that there's something powerful about opening the Word of God, about taking a pen and underlining a text and circling a text. There's something that uh, you see in Scripture that you don't see if you are looking at it on the screen. So, and, and when you see it in Scripture, it becomes personally yours. You, you write a note to it, you write down a text. So if you have your Bible, great. If you don't, I hope you'll bring it next session. Look on with somebody next to you. And we're going to wait just a moment or two. I need somebody that's going to help me because, you know, these preachers, they get taken off in the wind as they start <laughs> preaching. And um, I need somebody who's going to help me with timing. We need to go from 9.30 to 10.30. Somebody in the front row, you guys, one of you got to watch, you young lady. What time is it now? Huh? Wow, we got to start, right? Is your clock right? I'm sure it is. I'm going to go till 1030. um, And this is a six-part class on the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. If you come one class, it's like going through breakfast and taking one piece of Silver Hills bread. (coughs) Uh, you will get some nourishment, but it's a lot better to eat the whole breakfast. So you are certainly free to go to whatever seminars you want, but I do want you to know that I've built this seminar uh, not as repetitive, but every class will be a different class. And I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to do, then we'll have prayer and launch right into our class. There are six classes on the Holy Spirit. I am convinced that one of the great issues in the Adventist Church today in the finishing of God's work is the reception of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the believers. As I travel the world, and uh, you take Mexico City, 20 million people, one of the largest cities in the world, the largest city. You take Tokyo and Japan, and you travel through the cities of Europe and Asia. Unless there is a dramatic outpouring of God's Spirit, the work of God on earth will not be finished. No human genius is capable uh, and no methods are capable of reaching this world. So the, the key that stands between us and the coming of Jesus is understanding and receiving the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives personally so that we can be those people that God longs for us to be. That's why this seminar is so vitally important. 
And I'm praying that not only will we learn something in the seminar, but that our hearts and minds will be changed, that this seminar will be something that you can take as young people and use it in small groups in your school, in your church, from the notes that you have, and that it can be life-changing, that the few hundred people here in this room can go out and you can share this material with others. And that's why I encourage you to underline your Bible, cross-reference it, and take adequate notes. There are six presentations, and I'll tell you about each presentation, then we'll pray and go into our first presentation. In the first presentation, I'm going to talk about the promise, the personality, and the power of the Holy Spirit. The promise, the personality, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's in our first presentation. We'll talk about the promise that Christ gave of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about the personality of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit an influence? Is the Holy Spirit the third person of the Godhead? What difference does that make if you understand the nature of the Holy Spirit? And we'll talk about the power of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. That's the first session. The second session, I will talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If somebody came up to you and said, have you experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Let's suppose you have a Pentecostal friend, and the Pentecostal friend says, have you experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The Pentecostal friend is thinking, have you spoken in tongues? But what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Uh, what is the baptism of fire? And how do you know if you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Does it make a difference in your life and witness if you've experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is that? And we're going to discuss that in the second session. In the third session this afternoon, and we have one session from 9.30 to 10.30, then we take a 15-minute break. We have a session from 10.45 till 11.45. Then we come back at 2.30. At 2.30, I'm going to talk about the true and false manifestations of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the gift of tongues, we're going to look at miracles, and we're going to look at signs and wonders. Um, what is the gift of tongues? What does the Bible mean when it talks about the gift of tongues? Is the gift of tongues evidence of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit? What about miracles? Should we expect miracles of healing today? And will the devil work miracles? Will God work miracles? And if the devil works miracles and God works miracles, how can you tell the difference? Is it possible that we're so afraid of the devil's miracles that we miss God's miracles? And is it possible that we want miracles so much that we're willing to accept the devil's miracles? So what, how do you tell? Are there criteria in the Bible and the writings of Ellen White that help you to tell? So that's the second, uh, that's the first session this afternoon. What about the signs in Mark chapter 16? You know, the Bible says these signs will follow them that they that believe. Uh, they will drink poison and they won't be killed. Uh, they'll take up serpents and uh, they'll speak in unknown tongues. What does that mean? And so we're going to look at the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, uh, the true and false manifestations. That'll take us both sessions this afternoon. Those that, that is such a uh, comprehensive presentation that will take us both sessions. So today, presentation. One, the personality power of the Holy Spirit, um, and the person, and and then uh, the uh, promise of the Holy Spirit. Then <coughs> session number two today, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of fire. Uh, this afternoon, 
counterfeit signs and uh, miracles of healing and tongues and how do you know the difference between the true and the false? That's this afternoon. Tomorrow morning, we're going to deal with the early and latter rain when God pours out his spirit on the church in the finishing of God's work and how to participate in that finishing of God's work. That's the early and latter rain tomorrow afternoon. And then though our last presentation, we're going to deal with the sanctuary and the Holy Spirit. What relationship does Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary and his intercession in the heavenly sanctuary have to the Holy Spirit? In each of our sessions, we'll, I'll usually make two presentations, then give you a chance for questions. What I find is if we do questions through the presentation, many of those things I may have answered, and it may take us in a different direction. So we'll have three question and answer periods. Like I'll do two presentations this morning, but the, at the end of the morning, I'll set aside 10, 15 minutes for questions. So your questions will be answered, but if you would be so kind to just jot them down and we can take questions in a block because then we're going to get a lot more done in our studies. Do you mind if I make a quick announcement? Okay. We have a lot of people that would really like to come into the seminar. So if you could either move to the front or squish to the center so that we can see the seats that are available. If you could please do that, we would really appreciate it so that the people that would like to come into the seminar will be able to, because right now it looks like it's full, and so we're shutting the doors, but if there are open seats, we'd like to have them filled. So if you could please come to the front or move into the center so that we can see the seats that are available. Young lady, I know young people well, and there are plenty of spots on the floor. <laughs> I'm an evangelist, sister. I get everybody in my meetings I can. <laughs> uh, uh, see, an evangelist never shuts the door. Amen. You know, the door of Jesus, the door is open. The sanctuary door is not shut yet, so don't shut my door, sister. <laughs> yeah. You know, I believe in the open door. Yeah. In fact, I'd go out in the hall and get them in. Well, we're going to pray, and our first presentation is on the power, personality, and promise of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we just ask you right now that you would grace our assembly with your Spirit. May the Holy Spirit be something that we not simply talk about, but we experience. May this seminar draw us closer to you in ways that we have not imagined would happen. May we sense the moving of your spirit upon our hearts. As we open the word of God, convict us of sin. Show us who we are and show us who you are. May the promise that you gave 2,000 years ago of your spirit be fulfilled in the church today. And may we see the glorious climax of your work and the soon return of our Lord, in Christ's name, amen. amen. Sally was living in a poverty-stricken home. Her husband had died about 30 years before. And once he died, she became so discouraged that she never wanted to leave the home. Now, you can imagine that if this home had been in disrepair for 30 years. By now, the water wasn't working well and the pipes were leaking. By now, since she didn't have any money, they had turned off the lights and turned off the heat. 
By now, if she wanted to cook meals, she'd cook them on a little Coleman stove. Her clothes were threadbare, and she was living in a very terrible situation. Her neighbors hardly ever saw her go out of the house, because why would you want to go out of the house if you were so discouraged and if you had very little money to spend? Occasionally, she'd go out and buy a few morsels of food, and she lived a subsistence existence. One of her friends from 30 years before, who hadn't seen Sally for 30 years, decided to drop by the house. And as she dropped by, this woman now was living in another city, her name was Miriam, and she came by to see <coughs> Sally. As she came in, she saw the house deteriorating, she saw that Sally was thin, emaciated, and she was just desperate. And so she said, Sally, look, I'm here to help. She brought in some food, and she said, let's start getting this place cleaned up. And as they were cleaning it up, they came to an old roll-top desk that Sally's husband, Jeb, had 30 years ago. And as Miriam rolled it down, she saw a file. And in the file, there was a folder that said, For Sally. And in that folder, there was a letter from Sally's husband who had died 30 years before. And the letter said something like this, Dear Sally, I don't have much time left on earth, but I have made all the provisions necessary for you. I will be leaving this world shortly because I know that my cancer is terminal, but you will not be wanting for anything. There is the bank book in the folder. Take that to the bank, please. There is a key to our safety deposit box. And Miriam said to Sally, Sally, what's this? And so I said, I don't know. I've never seen it before. I was so discouraged after Jeb died, I never looked in the desk. Now, this is what they discovered. They discovered that in the savings account that was deposited 30 years before, there was about $58,000, but with compound interest, it was worth $254,000 now. They discovered that there was a coin collection. When they took that key and went down to the safety deposit box, they discovered a coin collection that was worth $47,000. They discovered stock certificates that had matured over 30 years that were worth $550,000. And they discovered cash for $32,000. Sally was one of the richest women in the city. She was worth liquid cash, $883,000. But she was living in abject poverty. She was living as if she were a pauper and had no money to buy clothes, no money to provide the money for the electricity for the house, no money to buy food, yet she was incredibly wealthy. Could it be? Is it possible that our Lord who left us, left us extremely rich and extremely wealthy? But it, could it be that we are living at times poverty-stricken Christian lives. Have you ever felt powerless to overcome those immoral thoughts that flow through your mind, young man? Have you ever felt powerless, young lady, to deal with that critical tongue? Have you ever felt in your life that you failed on the same thing again and again and again and again, and you have said to yourself, why is it? that I can't get what I believe in my head into action in my life. Amen. Somebody doesn't have to tell me it's wrong. 
I don't need more reinforced guilt that what I'm doing is wrong. I need power to change. Amen. Have you ever felt that way in your life? Yes. Yes, I think all of us at times in our lives have been frustrated when the devil has attacked us and we've fallen. I think all of us at times in our lives have felt powerless. Have you ever felt at times that you've wanted to say something to that non-Christian friend and you've not quite known what to say or you've said it and you felt powerless in your witness? There are times that we feel powerless in our personal lives and we feel powerless in our witness. The answer to that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in our lives. Amen. And so we want to take a look this morning at the beginning, at the promise of Jesus. Amen. Is there anything that Jesus cannot do? No. Yes. Is there anything that God cannot do? Yes. Lie. Force our will. Lie. Force our will. Lie. There is something he can't do. Here's the Bible text, Hebrews chapter 6. There is something the Bible says that's impossible for God to do. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18. Hebrews 6 verse 18. There is something impossible that he cannot do. That by two immutable things, what's immutable? What's something that's immutable? Yeah, but I mean, what does the word immutable mean? Unchangeable. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Why is it impossible for God to lie? Yeah, it goes against his character because he is the way, the what? Truth and the life. He is truth and he cannot go contrary to who he is, so he cannot lie. So it's impossible for God to lie. It says by two immutable, unchangeable things. What are the two unchangeable things according to the text? His oath and his covenant. His oath and his covenant are the two unchangeable things. It's impossible for him to lie. What God says is true because he is the truth. What God says is always true because he's always true. So if God gives a promise, and if it's impossible for him to lie, then the reception of that promise means, it depends on our believing the promise. Are you with me? Amen. So since he cannot lie, since he is the truth, when he gives a promise, I don't have to question the promise. Amen. The promise is not to be questioned. The promise is to be accepted. Amen. So Jesus gave a promise. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And again, we have chosen not to use PowerPoint because I, am a, I believe that you are mature students who want to look at God's word and study it carefully. Amen. Luke chapter 24, and we're looking here at verse 49. Luke 24, verse 49. We're looking at a promise. In the first presentation, the promise, the personality, and the power of the Spirit. First, we look at the promise. Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. 
So Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, I send the promise of my Father. So the Father gave to the Son a promise that when Jesus ascended to heaven, that Christ would be welcomed by the Father. And as the token that he was welcomed by the Father, from the sanctuary in heaven, he would send his Holy Spirit to his earthly followers. So the reception of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost by the disciples was the signal that Jesus' sacrifice had been accepted by the Father. Now the proof of that is in Acts 2, verse 33. Acts 2, verse 33. This is a truth that is often overlooked by many Christians and Seventh-day Adventists. Where was the Holy Spirit poured out from? Heaven, yes, but specifically where was it poured out from in heaven? Jesus, yes, but what location was it poured out of? The sanctuary, that's the point. And the only Holy Spirit that I am interested in is the Holy Spirit that comes from the sanctuary. Now follow me closely. Jesus gave a promise to his earthly church that as he ascended to the Father and entered the holy place of the sanctuary, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out from the sanctuary on the early Christian church to begin the work of God on earth. The early Christian church believed that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom. Amen. They thought, for example, Peter, James, and John, one that sat on his right or one that sat on his left, thought that Jesus would give them a place in his new kingdom. And you remember they went to their mother and they said, talk to Jesus, that when he comes into the kingdom, we'll sit one on the right and one on the left. The early disciples thought that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom that he was going to vanquish the Romans, that Israel would be prominent. When Jesus died on the cross, they were bitterly disappointed. Did those disciples have prophecies in the Old Testament telling them that Christ was going to be crucified? Yes. They did, Isaiah 53, for example. But they were bitterly disappointed. So they studied prophecy, they misunderstood prophecy, they were disappointed. After the disappointment, they looked to where Jesus was in the sanctuary, accepted his promise of the Holy Spirit. It was poured out, and they went to preach the gospel to the world. And according to Paul, in Colossians 1, it was preached to every creature under heaven in that time. Now, fast forward 2,000 years. Was there another group of people in the 1800s that studied prophecy? Yes. Were they, did they also misunderstand prophecy? Yes. Were they also disappointed? Yes. And what happened? They were to look to the most holy place of the sanctuary, receive not the early reign of the Spirit, but receive what? The latter reign to finish God's work. So it becomes vitally important to understand where the genuine Holy Spirit is poured out from. In the latter days, just as in the New Testament, it's poured out from the sanctuary. And what do you know about the most holy place in the sanctuary? What is there? God's presence is there, but there's also something else there called the Ark of the what? Covenant. Covenant. And in that Ark, what is there? There's, there's Ten Commandments. What else is in the Ark? Aaron's rod. What else is in the Ark? The manna. Why those three things are there? One, 
Aaron's rod that budded represents leadership. Israel rebelled against the leadership of God. The true Holy Spirit always leads you to be faithful to the leadership of the Adventist church and organization. Aaron's rod that budded. Secondly, the manna. That's the health reform message. The genuine Holy Spirit never comes down to work miraculous healing so you can continue to smoke and drink and destroy the body of the temple of God. That's why the manna is there. The Ten Commandment law is where? In a sanctuary, in the most holy place, so the genuine Holy Spirit always leads you to obedience. See, the counterfeit manifestations of the Holy Spirit, we'll go into this in depth this afternoon, they lead you to want signs, wonders, and, and feeling, and miracles. But the genuine Holy Spirit, the genuine promise, leads you to sense that your body is the temple of God. Amen. It leads you to respect authority and not rebel against it. It leads you to want the law of God enshrined in your heart so that you can uh, live a life of godly obedience and touch people with the gospel. So... Back to Acts, the second chapter. Acts chapter 2, we're looking there at verse 33. What happened when Jesus was exalted at the right hand of God? Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father, what it, Jesus received something from the Father. What was it? The promise of this Holy Spirit. Do you remember we read in Luke chapter 24... Verse 49, notice the comparison between those two texts. Luke 24, verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. Receiving the promise, you receive what? Power. And it's the promise of the Father. So when did Jesus receive the promise of the Father? When he ascended to the sanctuary there in the holy place when he ascended to heaven. It says in Luke chapter 2, rather Acts chapter 2 verse 33, Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So according to Peter when he's describing in Acts 2 what happened. Peter says, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that outpouring is the result of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross being accepted by the Father, and it's the fulfillment of the promise of God. God made a promise, and it's impossible for God to do what? lie, so God always fulfills his promises, so God poured out his spirit upon the disciples. Ellen White makes an interesting observation about the promise of the spirit in Acts of the Apostles, page 49. She says, the promise of the Holy Spirit is not limited to any age or race. Christ declared that the divine influence of the Spirit was to be with his followers to the end. The lapse of time has wrought no change in Christ's parting promise to send the Holy Spirit as his representatives. If the fulfillment of the promise is not seen as it might be, it's because the promise is not appreciated as it should be. The lapse of time has wrought no change in the promise. Is Christ's promise just as real for you as it was for Peter, James, and John. Amen. Has that promise changed in any way? 
Are you in your own personal life on your knees praying for the fulfillment of that promise in your life? Are you setting aside time to pray in groups of two or three as young people saying, God, you have promised that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will come to your Latter-day Church. And this is a promise that you have given. And with all promises, there are conditions. And one of the conditions of this promise is that we ask. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, if you being evil, Luke 11, verse 13, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will I give the Holy Spirit to those that do what? Ask, ask. One of the conditions of the reception of the Holy Spirit is asking. It's saying, Lord, I am powerless, but you are powerful. I am weak, but you are strong. I am ignorant, but you are wise. Lord, we cannot do something about this unless your spirit is poured out. I have seen times in my evangelism where we have been in situations that seemed to be absolutely impossible. Situations that no human being could ever solve. Situations that unless the Holy Spirit was poured out powerfully and dramatically, we would be in deep trouble. I remember I was holding an evangelistic meeting, preparing for one in Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. And one, just before we went to Port Moresby, the government of New Guinea voted, the parliament voted to nationalize the land. And what that meant was that one of the greatest resources of the New Guinean government would be sold off to multinational corporations. The university students recognized that this would damage future generations, so they marched in the streets to protest. While they were marching in the streets to protest, the government and the police and the army overreacted. They shot into the crowd and they killed seven students. Once they killed those students, the university students began to riot in the streets. The dissident elements joined with them and uh, the criminal elements, and they began to burn cars, loot shops, and the whole place was in an uproar. The government, trying to control that, put a curfew on the city of Port Moresby from 7 o'clock at night till 7 o'clock in the morning. Now, what that meant was that we would not be able to hold our evangelistic meeting. It would be absolutely impossible because we could not hold it during the day, we had to hold it during the evening, we couldn't get the stadium, and we, were, we had been planning for over a year for this series of meetings. We organized a thousand prayer warriors in that city, people that would be praying to God, a thousand people that would be opening their hearts to Jesus and asking for the ministry of the Holy Spirit and asking God to work in the hearts of government. A thousand prayer groups is more accurate to say. And so we organized people in groups of two, three, or four, and they began to pray. When I got there on Monday, the curfew was on. Curfew on Tuesday, curfew on Wednesday. Burned out cars in the streets. It was very tense and dangerous. Thursday night I went to bed and I told our staff, I said, get the stadium prepared. I believe the spirit is going to work on the hearts of the parliament. And I believe that God through his spirit can change things. 
that night, Thursday night, Parliament met, and we were praying for the outpouring of the Spirit on the nation. We were praying that God would change the hearts of the Parliament. They met till 2 o'clock in the morning. There was a late edition of the newspaper that was printed early that morning. And when that newspaper came out, the headlines of the newspaper were, Parliament meets till 2 a.m., curfew lifted. Then it said, Seventh-day Adventists will have their meeting tonight. The headlines of the newspaper then went on to say, the president or prime minister of the nation is going to address the nation at the stadium tonight. The entire nation is invited, and he himself will introduce Pastor Finley. After the president speaks, Pastor Finley will speak. We could not have bought that advertising for hundreds of thousands of dollars. 100,000 people came to the stadium that night. It was larger than any soccer game they ever had in the stadium. It was larger than any political rally and larger than any rock concert. It was the largest meeting in the history of that country. In addition to that, the television carried it live. The the newspaper printed my sermons, 20-some sermons in the newspaper. Every night they were on TV and every night radio. We estimate that someplace between two and three million people in the nation were watching and listening to that. Oh, two million plus were listening to the meetings. The Holy Spirit can do in a short amount of time what we can never possibly imagine. What did Ellen White say? What was our statement? The lapse of time has wrought no change in the parting promise of the Holy Spirit. God wants to do exceedingly abundantly above what we could ask or think for you, for the sin that you have struggled with for years. The parting promise of the Holy Spirit is yours. God must do something in us before he can do something through us. He must do something for us before he ever can do something by us. So God's longing is that his Holy Spirit and the promise is poured out in our lives. Jesus gave that promise to his disciples in John 16, verse 7. John 16, verse 7 is the promise to the disciples. And we read it here in John 16, in verse 7. Jesus gives to us the promise of the Spirit. Now, this is a fascinating promise. That is, I, I, if I were one of the disciples, I, could say, I would wonder and I'd say, Lord, how could this be true? And for a number of years in my ministry, I wrestled with this passage. I wondered about it. John 16, verse 7. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. What is Jesus telling us? What? Why does he tell us the truth? Because he cannot do what? Lie. Because he is the truth. Nevertheless, I tell you the what? Truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Wait a minute, Lord. I I can't see this one. Suppose you're Peter, James, John, and Jesus says to you, it's to your advantage that I'm going away. Lord, I know you tell the truth, but you made a mistake on this one. I mean, I saw you break the bread and you fed 5,000, Lord. I mean, I saw you touch the eyes of the blind and they were opened and the ears of the deaf and they were healed. And you're saying that it's to my advantage that you go away? Peter says, Lord, when my mother-in-law died, you raised her from the dead. I mean, Lord, wait a minute now. I mean, it's to my advantage? 
We are personally present with you. We have sat on the Mount of Olives and listened to your sermon on the end time events. We've, we've, Lord, we've been with you this whole time. We've, we've been there in the Galilee and listened to the Sermon on the Mount. You're saying it's to our advantage that you go away? If you understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit, now this is powerful. If you really understand this, the Spirit of Christ dwelling in your heart brings Jesus closer to you than if he were sitting by your side. Oh, amen. There are two reasons, and I want to show you this from the Bible. I want to show you this from the Bible in the writings of Ellen White. What if I said to you, at this GYC, Jesus is going to walk through those doors and he's going to sit here and teach this audience? Amen. Do you think that we'd have a lot of young people if we absolutely knew that Jesus would be here? But what if Jesus said to that same group, it's to your advantage that I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. Amen. Are you with me? Amen. Now, there are two reasons why Jesus made that statement, is to your advantage that I go away. For a long time I understood the first. I am just beginning to probe the depths of the second. And I want to share it with you. I just want to introduce it to you. The first reason it was to their advantage that Jesus went away is because when Jesus was here, he could be visibly present with one person or a group of people at one time. When he went away, he would send his spirit, which is the personal presence of Christ, to be visible with everybody, Amen. to be present with everybody wherever they are, and geography would not limit his presence. Now, that's an obvious reason. And Ellen White makes that point, too. For example, in Desire of Ages, page 669, she says, By the Spirit, the Savior would be accessible to all. In this sense, he would be nearer to them than if he had not ascended on high. So, the accessibility of the Savior to all. But here's what I wrestled with. Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, I w if I don't go away, I won't send the Holy Spirit to you. And then Jesus said, in the text that we read, Luke 24, 49, he said, I'm giving you the promise of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, tarry here until I send you the Holy Spirit. But here's the question. Why make those statements? Why make those statements? Wasn't the Holy Spirit present in the days of Noah? Wasn't the Holy Spirit present in the days of Daniel? Wasn't the Holy Spirit present with the disciples to draw them to Jesus in the first place? And if all of that is true, what sense does it make to say that I'm giving you the promise of the Holy Spirit if you're going to have it? Like if, you have ten, if I've given you $10 already and I say... Oh, I'm going to promise to give you $10. So you already gave me $10. You mean $10 more? You see, what sense does that make? As I have wrestled with this, let me give you an explanation for it. The Holy Spirit strove on hearts in the days of Noah. When you look at the Old Testament 
Ellen White makes an interesting statement in which she says the dispensation that we are now living is the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. Now that's very fascinating. When you look at the Old Testament, the major emphasis in the Old Testament is on a loving God leading his people Israel. When you look at the New Testament, the major emphasis is on a loving Christ redeeming his people. When you look at, from New Testament today, the major emphasis is on the ministry of the Holy Spirit empowering and transforming the lives of his believers. The Holy Spirit takes everything that God did in the Old Testament and everything that Jesus did in his life and makes it a reality in the life of the believer. So just as God was in the forefront in the Old Testament and Jesus was in the, Old in the forefront in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit takes what God did and what Jesus did and makes it a reality in our life. Now let me go a step beyond that. And here's the step beyond that. Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Jesus would sit by his side, but could not dwell in them except through his Holy Spirit. Jesus can sit by Peter's side. Jesus can teach Peter truth. But Jesus said, I'm going to give you a great advantage because no longer am I going to sit by your side and teach you truth. Now through my Holy Spirit, I'm going to enter into your life and reveal to you truth and change your life. Amen. How does Christ, what is the function and work of the Holy Spirit and how does Jesus live within us? Now, let's look at that from the Bible. The, one of the functions and works of the Holy Spirit, and if you take your Bible and look, for example, at John chapter 14, John chapter 14. There are many functions of the Holy Spirit, but if you look at John 14, you'll notice one of the major functions of the Holy Spirit. John, the 14th chapter, and verse 20, John 15, rather, John 15, verse 26. John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, and who's the Helper? The Holy Spirit. The, Holy Spirit. the word for Helper there is paraclete. Another word for that is paraclete is one who comes alongside of, one who gives you support, strength, instruction. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So the function of the Holy Spirit in the heart and life of the believer is to testify of whom? Jesus. So the Holy Spirit makes Jesus real in our lives. Any emphasis on the Holy Spirit without the Holy Spirit revealing the Jesus is a false emphasis. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't testify of himself, does he? So we are not jumping up and down saying, praise the Holy Spirit. When we say, praise Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit that is placed within our heart, that desire to praise Jesus. Amen. When I say, Lord, Jesus, when I come to the cross and I see Christ dying for me and I see the forgiveness of his sins and I see Jesus transforming my life, who is leading me to do that? It's the Holy Spirit. So the true, genuine manifestation of the Holy Spirit is when we're exalting Jesus in our lives because the Holy Spirit is the testify of Jesus. Now, how does Jesus dwell within us? Well, go back to look at John 14 and verse 26. 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you remembrance that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus. The Holy Spirit reveals to us the things in our lot, the things that Jesus teaches in the Word. But now the text that I want you to look at is Ephesians 3, verse 16 and 17. Ephesians 3, verse 16 and 17. Why is it an advantage for Jesus to go away? Well, one, because now through the Holy Spirit he's accessible to all. Two, through the Holy Spirit he dwells in us in ways that are closer than we would have if he were present. Ephesians 3, 14, 15, and 16. For this reason I bow my, my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3, 14 to 16. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Ephesians 3, 16. To be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man. So how are we strengthened to face the devil? through the Holy Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. How does Christ dwell in our hearts through faith? Through the Holy Spirit living within us in the inner man, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, length, depth, and height, to know the love of God that passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So God wants you to be filled with his fullness. And we're filled with his fullness as the Holy Spirit lives within us. And that's Christ within us, the hope of glory. So Jesus said to his earthly disciples, it's your advantage that I go away. Because when I go, I'm going to send the promise of the Holy Spirit. Was the Holy Spirit present in the Old Testament? Yes. But he was there to impress Noah. He was there on special occasions. But now, he is not simply there to impress, not simply there on special occasions. Amen. He is resident in this world because of the promise of, of Jesus, and he wants to dwell in us and change our hearts so that we can reveal the fullness of Christ to the world. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yes. On my knees I say, Jesus, Jesus, fill me with your love and a knowledge of Christ Amen. through the Spirit. I want you to grasp the reality of this fact that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit you can be closer to Jesus than if he were here in person. Amen. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit Christ can fill your hearts. Look at Ephesians again. Don't hurry by that. Verse 15, verse 16 that he, Jesus, would grant you Ephesians 3, the riches of his glory. What are the riches of his glory? A knowledge of his grace, his mercy, his love, his goodness. That the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might through what? His spirit in the inner man. That he might dwell in your hearts through what? Faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. On our knees with our Bibles opened, we pray, dear Lord, 
I want to be filled with the fullness of God. Dear Lord, I want to know the love of Christ that passes all knowledge. I want to be able to comprehend with all of the saints, verse 18, all the believers, what's the width and length and depth and height. Lord, I long for that infilling of your spirit. You know that little song, Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me? Let's sing it for a moment. Somebody start it. Living God, fall afresh on me. me, fool me. Hold me, make me, me, me. Spirit of the living God, promise of the Holy Spirit is real. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for you. Now, before this session ends, we want to look momentarily, how am I doing for time, at the personality of the Holy Spirit. There is a move in some quarters of the Adventist church today that want to look at the Holy Spirit as an influence rather than the third person of the Godhead. And what that move does is attempts to take some statements made in the 1840s, late 1840s and 1850s by some of the earlier Advent pioneers and Ellen White and say that Ellen White saw the Holy Spirit as an it and the Adventist pioneers did and not a person. There are two ways to address that. First, what does the Bible say? Amen. Secondly, in understanding of the gift of prophecy, I'll deal with the second issue first. Is the gift of prophecy the gift of omniscience? Is the gift, because Jeremiah received the gift of prophecy from God, did he know everything? No. Did Ellen White know everything that was truth when she began her role as, a, as the gift of prophecy? No. Was there a time that Ellen White did not understand the issues regarding pork? Have you ever read some of her statements early on regarding pork? She didn't understand. Remember when she told the brethren, don't put this in the review because it's not time, it's, it's not an issue? 1844 is her issue. But then later when God gave her the health message, he revealed truth to her, right? So truth unfolds what? Gradually, over time, did some of the early Adventist pioneers not understand Loughborough, for example, the whole issue of smoking a cigar? Yeah. Sure. So you can be a true servant of God, but you may not understand all the truth, and God un reveals it. Okay? So I wouldn't want to take some of Ellen White's statements in the 1840s regarding pork and apply them to 1900, because God gave her a vision, right? Once you look at the writing of Desire of Ages, Ellen White fully understood that the Holy Spirit was the third person of the Godhead. 
If you look at some of the earlier statements, that truth was unfolding as many other truths were unfolding. So that's the answer to that question. Don't go back and take something in the 1840s and 1850s when there is an unfolding of truth that God is giving her because God can't reveal all truth at one time, and I will show you that. But first, let's look at the Bible about the nature of the Holy Spirit. And why is this so important? If the Holy Spirit is an influence, then I may want to use that influence. But if the Holy Spirit is a divine person, then I fall on my knees and say, Spirit of the living God, full afresh on me. If the Holy Spirit's an influence, I want to use the influence. If the Holy Spirit's a power, I want the power. But if the Holy Spirit is a divine person, then I want to open my heart to let the Spirit reveal the fullness of Christ in my life. And I want the Spirit to use me, not me to use the Spirit. And there's a big difference between the two. Okay, now, we're going to look at the evidence from the Bible and then the evidence from Ellen White that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. John chapter 14. We will look there at verses 14 to 16. First, we look at the evidence from the Bible. John 14, verse 14 to uh, 16, 15 and onward. John 14. And uh, verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Notice the emphasis on the divine personality of the Holy Spirit. He'll give you another helper that he, Christ, may abide with you through the influence of the Spirit. Now, if you go over to John chapter 16, John chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I go not away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send what? Him to you. Verse 16, verse 8. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. An influence can't convict you. An influence is non-personal. Only the third person, the Godhead, can bring conviction. Then it says, uh, if you look, for example, at these four texts about the Holy Spirit, and I'm just going to have you write them down. Ephesians 4.30, the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Can you grieve an influence? No. You can only grieve what? A person. A person. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 3, it says, the Spirit shall not always strive. So the Spirit strives. It's, it's, so Ephesians 4.30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Genesis 6.3, the Holy Spirit will strive with you. Um, if you look, for example, at... Ro I want you to look at the passage in Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. And we're looking there at Romans 8, verse 26. Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise the Spirit... Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses... For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes what? Intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. I never saw an influence in my life that groaned. Right? And the Bible says the Holy Spirit makes what for us? Intercession. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. Now here is where our problem lies. We equate personality with visibility. We equate, equate personhood with visibility. If I can't see it, it must not be a what? Person. 
but we're dealing with divine things. Uh, to try to limit the personality of the Holy Spirit, which I cannot see to my mind, is trying to put the ocean in a pail. It's not possible. It's not possible. Somebody said to try to understand the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their divine nature is to lose your mind. <laughs> to deny the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and their eternal nature is to lose your soul. You see? So, because I can't understand something fully doesn't mean the thing that I don't understand doesn't exist. Right. You know, infinite things, infinite things mean that you constantly study them and study them and study them. But the more you study them, the more you realize that you're never going to know everything about them. That's right. But I'd rather know all that I know about the Holy Spirit Amen. and not know all that I don't know than know all I don't know and not know what I know. <laughs> and that's the truth. I'd rather know all that I know about the Holy Spirit that's revealed in the Bible and leave the things that I, and not know all I don't know than know all the things I don't know and not know the things I know. Right? Sure. Because God has made most important, most clear what's most important. Are you with me? So I don't have to understand everything about the Holy Spirit. He's the third person that God had. Amen. So be it. By faith I believe it. Now, the Bible says, Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the what? Father, the Son, and what? The Holy Spirit. So who is the Holy Spirit? The third person of the Godhead that reveals the character of God, that, that enables Christ to dwell in my heart. Now, here are a couple statements from the writings of Ellen White on this very topic of who is the Holy Spirit. These are so clear. Testimonies to Ministers, page 392. Evil had been accumulating for centuries and could only be restrained and resisted by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. Evil is accumulating for what? Centuries. Do not think that without the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in your life, you are sufficient to match the temptations of Satan. Evil has been resist, restrained. Evil has been accumulating for what? Centuries. It reminds me, you know, down in Florida, it, Florida is known for its orange juice. How many Floridians here today? All right, wonderful. Wonderful. They came up to get away from the cold weather. <laughs> now, I'll tell you something that I bet you Floridians don't know. You may. You tell Pastor Mark later if you knew this. You often see going down the I-4 in Florida or other places, great big trucks with oranges in them. These, you know, hundreds, thousands of oranges in the orange season, about November, December, when their oranges are on, they're picking the oranges, you put them in these big trucks. Well, they take those oranges to large uh, warehouses, and these warehouses have conveyor belts, and they sort the oranges. Now, let's suppose that I was an orange. I am not, but let's suppose I was. I would say, I'm going on the truck, and I'm saying, this is a nice ride. I don't like hanging in those trees in the Florida sun anyway. I was getting too suntan. Then I, they take me into this warehouse. They put me on a conveyor belt, and I think this is orange Disneyland. And I'm on this conveyor belt, and I'm going and I'm bouncing along in the conveyor belt. And I'm saying, this is wonderful. We're bouncing around. Oh, this is great. 
Now, those conveyor belts have holes. They have three sets of holes. The first set of holes is big enough to let the smallest oranges through, but not big enough to let medium or grade A oranges through. So the oranges are bouncing along in this conveyor belt, and they all go through these holes, and then they're squeezed and made orange juice. So if I were an orange, I'd say, too bad for those little guys, they just went through. But I'm going through to the end. Then I go around another corner, and there are holes big enough to let the grade B oranges through, but too little to let the A ones through. And all those guys go, too bad. Those guys went off over there. They went through the holes. They fell out of the church. Too bad, too bad. I mean, they listened to all that rock music. Too bad, they're out, you know. <laughs> too bad, you know, these guys went partying. <laughs> but I'm a B orange. I'm going through, right through those holes. I'm going to be orange juice, too. And then you go around the corner, and here are all the GYC oranges. <laughs> here, they, here, here they are. They're going around the corner. And there's holes. And what's going to happen? <laughs> what's going to happen? Orange juice GYC. <laughs> GYC won't save you. It's not going to get you through to the end. Only as our hearts are broken. And the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in our hearts. It's only as our lives are filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a hole and a temptation for you. And only God can get you through. And only the Spirit filling your life can get you through. But here's the tremendously good news. The weakest child of God, filled with the Spirit, is more than a match for all the angels of hell. The most ignorant child of God is wiser than the men of this world and the women of this world filled with the Spirit. Here's what it says. Evil had been accumulating for how long? Centuries. And could only be restrained and resisted. Can it be restrained and resisted? Yes. But only. What's only mean? Only restricted by the power of the, by the mighty power of what? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. So all of the evil that's been accumulated in centuries is not going to impact this generation of youth that are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. What do you say? All the evil that's been accumulated down through the ages is not going to move this generation. They are going to touch the world for witness for Christ. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit through the third person of the Godhead is going to come with no modified energy. And in the fullness of divine power, we will see the world. Amen. One for Jesus Christ. What do you say? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that through the Holy Spirit we can be closer to Jesus than when he was personally here sitting by our side. We thank you that a generation of youth will be filled with the Spirit and go out and take the world for Christ. Oh, Father, we long for that Spirit to breathe his breath upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC generation of youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.